Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. Cardinal Mueller has made some waves among those paying close attention when he recently repeated in an interview St. Robert Bellarmine's thesis that a pope who teaches heresy automatically loses his office. Mueller has been taking shots at Francis lately, and it's little wonder. As I've reported to you earlier this week, Francis endorsed Pastor Jimmy Martin's satanic program, chastised regular Catholics for their love of their homelands, while repeating the tiresome talking points of our secular rulers. He's been doing those things for quite a while. None of that's actually new. It's just he keeps doing it over and over again. It's gotten to the point where opposition to him is growing among the bishops. Nowhere is this more evident than in the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meeting in Baltimore, which has lay modernists wailing and gnashing their teeth at the new president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, something I almost didn't bother reporting on, except their online behavior was so delicious I had to. Though, to be fair, some of them do raise at least one valid criticism of him. So before we talk about whether Francis is a heretic and has lost his office or not, according to Cardinal Mueller, let's check in with the USCCB. The new president of the USCCB is Archbishop Timothy Broglio, yes, that's his name, of the Archdiocese of the U.S. military. As Massimo Fascioli, the mouthpiece for all things Francis in the U.S., stated about this on Twitter, quote, It is difficult to overstate what a repudiation of Pope Francis the selection of Broglio to lead the conference is, end quote. And he's not wrong. The National Catholic Reporter was crying real tears over his win at the U.S. Bishops' Conference meeting, saying in their article, quote, the bishop's choice of new leadership revealed the deeper ecclesiological orientation of the body. They had to decide if they wanted to be part of the ongoing reception of the Second Vatican Council in the context of the magisterium of Pope Francis, or not, a choice made all the more obvious by the success of the synodal process so far. As Papal Nuncio Archbishop Christophe Pierre reminded them in his opening address, the bishops govern the church cum petro and sub petro, with Peter and under Peter. They forgot that law or ignored it 30 minutes later. In my many years of coming to these meetings of the U.S. Bishops Conference, I have learned that relationships are usually, but not always, more important than ideology in the selection of conference officers and committee chairs. This year, however, the bishops faced clear ideological choices. In the person of Broglio, the bishops had a candidate who rejected Pope Francis's call for a more outward-focused accompanying church, a throwback to the preconciliar vision of his mentor and patron, the late Cardinal Angelo Sodano, end quote. Cardinal Angelo Sodano is important here, and he's not an angel by any stretch of the imagination. And herein lies with one of the, one of the problems with Broglio. Archbishop Broglio worked closely with Cardinal Angelo Sodano, who covered for the monstrous Maciel Maciel, who made Ted McCarrick look just like a creepy uncle by comparison. There have been a lot of questions raised about Broglio related to Maciel, and few answers have ever been given. You may bristle at the guilt by association that is being applied here, but at this point, Maciel and McCarrick's friends have all gotten promotions, and, well, they've all been bad. So it is natural to ask this question here. But, he was cho but in his defense, Broglio was chosen by his peers. So, again, there's a more basic objection, though, to Broglio, and it's this. He has been a staunch opponent of the traditional Latin Mass, being one of the more vocal supporters of Traditionis Custodis. That is bad. <laughs> the U.S. bishops are sending a rather clear liturgical message with his ascension to the leading the U.S. bishops, 
and it should not give traditional Catholics real hope about the liturgy being liberated anytime soon. But still, anything that causes the National Catholic Reporter and all their modernist allies to weep and gnash their teeth is a good thing to some degree and welcome news. We get our joys where we can, I guess. If Broglio opposes the synodal path and the synod on synodality enough to prevent the worst ideas that will come from the synod from taking hold in America, then good. He deserves our support at least on that much. Maybe he was the best choice after all. Naked heresies have been the fruit of the synod on synodality, and the working document headed by Austin Ivory, of all people, is full of formerly condemned errors, including the call for priestesses and changing the church's teaching on the James Martin sin, and all manner of other errors that bring the church into lockstep with the values of the secular world. Instead of standing against the world, we're now walking hand in hand with it. Joy. Against this backdrop, we come to Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, who gave an interview to Cath.net, the German Catholic website that he frequently speaks with. In his interview, he hits the faithful with a number of important lessons, including his belief that a pope who embraces heresy loses his office automatically, as well as teaching about the limits to papal infallibility. Now, that's actually, I think, the more important part, because in light of the Synod on Synodality, given that any limits to papal teaching authority implies strongly that there are limits to our obedience to any papal claimant, and he goes into that here. Mueller is asked by his interviewer about papal infallibility and the limits of infallibility. His answer here is important for two reasons. First, there are limits to infallibility, and consequently, limits to our obedience to papal decrees. And second, because Cardinal Mueller adds in a bombshell, like I said, a pope who becomes a heretic loses his office automatically. This is the thesis of St. Robert Bellarmine from the article, quote, As has been said, the personal opinions and life experiences of the reigning pope are no more or less acceptable than those of any other educated or even decent ordinary person. In Lumen Gentium, Vatican II once again explains in detail what is meant by the infallibility of the church in questions of faith and what is not. Dogmatic declarations can have the quality of inerrancy if their content derives from sacred scripture and apostolic tradition of the word of God, and if they are formally recognized by the competent authority of the magisterium of the church and of the pope and the bishops. With the assistance of the Holy Spirit, as one from God revealed truth to be presented to believe. However, it is therefore entirely erroneous to think that a council or a pope could overturn an earlier dogma or establish, for example, that the nature of the sacrament of holy orders does not require the, the male parts of its recipient or that two persons of the same biology can have a natural union, meaning a marriage of unbaptized or a sacramental marriage, i.e. one of two baptized or, to give another example, that the gesture of blessing over the James Martin pairing has a positive effect with God, who in his will to create man and woman, and the nuptial sacrament that goes with it. In extreme cases, a pope could become a heretic as a private person and would automatically lose his office if the contradiction to revelation and the dogmatic teaching of the church is evident, end quote. And now there's a very obvious problem with his answer. Sedevacantists are very, very good at pointing out that every single pope since Pius XII has taught ideas in contradiction to revelation and the dogmatic teaching of the church. Don't believe me? Go check out some of their arguments. Does that mean the set of a contest position is correct? Not necessarily. It also means that Mueller's position, as expressed in that interview, isn't necessarily correct either. And St. Robert Bellarmine's position has never been formally adopted by the church. But it does beg the question, who decides? Mueller doesn't really have an answer to that, partially because he simply wasn't asked that rather obvious question by his interviewer, which honestly is kind of amazing, 
since it's the first thing that jumps out at me whenever a prelate says that what Mueller said, because he's not the first to say it. Someone has to decide. But the problem is the church says no person can judge the pope. So to determine that a pope has lost his office requires a judgment of some kind. You begin to see the problem. The usual answer is that a future pontiff makes a call, which can take decades or even centuries to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. But none of us have that kind of time, unfortunately. I mean, we are dealing with Francis in, with real consequences in everyday life. Instead, Cardinal Mueller's interviewer asks a question that is important. Does a pope who causes scandal imply a limit to infallibility? Meaning, in a more clear sense, does a pope who causes scandal demand our obedience in all things? Cardinal Mueller reminds us that we are not to commit an idolatry of the Roman pontiff, that we don't worship the Pope, and that he is not a god to be adored and every word he says to be hung on, the way secular totalitarian organizations treat their leaders. Quote, It is not a question of limiting the Church's infallibility in the full presentation of Revelation, since it owes itself to a charism of the Holy Spirit, but every Pope must make a clear distinction between his task and himself as a private person. He must not impose his preferences on other Christians the way that redacted must study Mao's Bible or the wisdom of their, quote, great chairman. Nor must a pope or bishop or any other ecclesiastical superior abuse the confidence which is readily accorded to him in a fraternal atmosphere in order to provide ecclesiastical benefices to his incompetent or corrupt friends. If among the apostles chosen by Jesus there was a traitor and even Peter denied Jesus in the course of the Passion, then we know. Even in matters of the faith, we have an example of Paul standing in the face of Peter when he allowed himself a dangerous ambiguity in the truth of the gospel. See the letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Our effective and effective attachment to the Pope and to our bishop or minister has nothing to do with the undignified cultus of personality or of worldly autocrats, but is brotherly love for a fellow Christian in high office. He can also fail at this. Therefore, a loving criticism furthers the church more than a servile hypocrisy. But the best way we can help the Pope and the bishops is through prayer. We trust in Jesus, Lord of the church, who said to Simon, the rock on which he will build his church before the passion, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked that he as wheat may sift. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not be extinguished. And when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. See the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 22, verse 32, end quote. I'll stop quoting Cardinal Mueller extensively with this next one from the beginning of the interview. He is asked about infallibility and its rather basic purpose. And remember this in light of the Synod on Synodality. The point of papal infallibility is to proclaim the truth of Christ, to save souls. You know, to further the mission of the Catholic Church in the world. Quote, infallibility is not a private quality of the absolute authority claimed by the megalomaniac autocrats of this world, but a humble service to the church in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not come, quote, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10, verses 45. In a strictly revelation theological context, the charism of infallibility in the doctrine of faith and morals bestowed by the Holy Spirit on him personally and the ecumenical council together with him with which God has endowed his church is transferred to him, so that the church as a foundation and pillar of the truth of the living God, see the letter to first uh, to first, see first Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, 
who can present the revelation that has come once and for all in Christ in hearing and teaching to believe in an unabridged and undisguised manner, end quote. That interview is actually fairly long, and it's in German, so you'll need a translating website to read it, but I have a link to it in the show notes on my sources site at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with a .org at the end. It's a good place to follow me as a backup, by the way, since YouTube often doesn't like telling people when my show goes live, so that's a good backup place to check me out. But in general, Mueller isn't wrong. I just find it dissatisfying that no one ever bothers to ask the basic question of who decides, who judges, since no one on earth can judge the Pope. Who makes a judgment call that a pope has lost his office due to heresy? Do we wait until it becomes so manifestly obvious that the timid among the bishops can't take it anymore? Because honestly, I think that that ship sailed. I think we're well past that point, given how the USCCB leadership process went Tuesday. But I could be wrong about that. So let me know in the comments who you think makes the call. Is it a future pontiff, the bishops in some imperfect council, as Cardinal Burke has suggested? Let me know what you think about all of this in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. Sharing the social media helps a lot as well. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.